0: subject unashamed this is part two this will conclude as far as I know this will conclude this particular series in fact I said to Kaylee she said dad what what's for next what's coming up next and I said I'm concluding unashamed tomorrow this was yesterday our conversation and she said wow that's a short series and and then I felt like well maybe we need to add something else to it but I can't add to I don't want to add to nor take away from what the father wants to do so Kaylee don't encourage me to violate the word of the Lord (laughs) So, no, she would never do that. She would never do that. And, um, but I want to give it to you as he gave it to me. And, I'm, and, and again, in a few places in here, I'm probably going to have to pause to make sure that I understand exactly how he wants me to say it. I don't want to cross T's that weren't meant to be crossed. And I don't want to leave any uncrossed that were meant to be crossed. I don't want to put things where they don't belong and I don't want to leave things out that belong. I want to in every way possible, I want to be faithful over what he has given me to share with you today. And it was important enough that this week it, it was necessary that I sent you the notice. If you did not get the notification this week and you are a part of this house, if you did not get an email about today, it's because we don't have something right about your information, likely your email. So if that did not happen and you did not get notified, if you'll write your name and email address on a card, we will take care of that at the conclusion of today. So let's start, and I'm going to start by asking the Father to help me to say well to you what he has said so well to me. Father, today I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the anointing. I'm thankful for the Holy Ghost. I'm thankful that by your word and spirit we live and breathe. It is because of your intention for all of mankind that you sent your son to the cross. It is because of your intention for mankind that you even created the planet that we dwell on and the air that we breathe. It is because you have a purpose and a vision for man that you breathed your numa breath into each and every one of us. So today, as we enter into this moment that I believe is a significant time shift for the Rock of Central Florida, it is a significant shift for this house, it is a significant shift for this people, in our spirit, in our soul, in our mind, there is a dividing of flesh and spirit that's going to happen today. Help us today to align ourselves on the right side of the kingdom. Help us today, Father, in every way to see through your eyes, in Yeshua's name, amen and amen. I want to begin today by reading a little bit out of Job, just one little verse out of Job. And before I read this verse, I want to give you some background on what that is. If you most people know the story of Job and his loss of family and land and everything that he owned and and how Yahweh and really boy I don't, I, how do you paraphrase this without digging deep into this? I don't know how to do that, so I'm not going to try. I'm not going to add anything. I'm just going to say, leading up to the verse that I'm going to share with you, Job had been through a lot. He'd lost everything. And in that, he had some friends that were explaining to him why he lost everything and what he should do because he lost it. Well, in the loss of all that he lost, in the suffering and the pain and in the, in the hurt that all came with the loss of things, in him and the promise that he had possessed, in that he began to beat himself up. He began to bury himself with all the things that he must have done wrong. He began to believe the words of people that really did not have the right to speak. He gave them the right, therefore they had that right, but they did not have the right to speak to the full purpose of God. So he began to implode, Job did in Job chapter 7 he begins to fall apart he begins to woe is me why all this is happening to me and begins to find in himself father what have I done to deserve this what have what things have come upon me these things that have come upon me identify something that I must have done and I am ashamed of how I have disappointed you somehow to come to this place and then Bildad says to him in verse 7 of chapter 8, comes to him and speaks some words to him that are significant. And this is the particular verse that I want to read out of what Bildad said to Job in the middle of Job's low, uh, his weeping and his moment of self-burial. Bildad says to him, he said, Job, though your beginning, in Job 8, 7, though your beginning was insignificant, your end will increase greatly. If you want to read that whole story, I encourage you to read Job 7 and Job 8. But he says to him, he says, Job, though your beginning was insignificant, your end will increase greatly. I'm going to say it again. Though your beginning, and I'm saying this to every single person under the sound of my voice today, here or beyond. I'm saying to you, though your beginning may have been insignificant, your end, if you will trust the Father... Will increase greatly. Your end will increase greatly. These were the words Bildad spoke to Job following his self burial for what had happened to him and these are the words I speak to you today because there are some under the sound of my voice that are suffering from self burial right now you are crucifying yourself you are burying yourself you are imploding in every way because of things that do not need to be spoken of publicly you know what they are no one else needs to know but you hold these things against yourself and the shame of it the pressure of it, the oppression of it causes you to, in every single way, find a hole, dig a hole, jump in the hole, and do the best you can to cover yourself up with that hole, in that hole. I'm telling you, that is not the plan of God for you. And I'm telling you today, the Father has thrown a ladder into your hole and is giving you a way out. You have opportunity today to climb out of the hole... That is keeping you from being everything that you can be. When you're in the hole, you are not visible. And the Father needs you visible. When you're in the hole, your parameters, your boundaries limit you from being able to do or go very far. The Father wants you out of the hole because He wants you to be able to move to the left and move to the right and move to the front and move to the rear. He wants you to be able to jump. He wants you to be able to do whatever it is that He created you to do. That's what he wants. But so many people, not unlike Job, so many people are buried in a shame. Last week we talked about shame that comes to us that is self-imposed. We bring it upon ourselves. We, we look in the mirror and don't like what we see. We, whatever, however it might be, but much of our shame is self-imposed. Some of our shame is imposed by others, what they've said to us. We've heard our parents say, I'm ashamed of you for this. Or a teacher say, I'm ashamed of you for that. Without that person ever really realizing what the damage is that can be done with that that simple word by casting shame on someone. and, And then that person owns it. I remember as a kid... I don't remember how old I was, but I remember where I was seated. So I, I must have been at the, at the table I was seated at in the home I was in. I must have been about, I must have been probably 10, 11 years old. And, and I, but I remember this moment and it registered and stuck with me and sticks with me today. I've, I think about this often. In fact, I've mentioned it to you often. But I remember I was seated at the table with my brother and uh, a friend of ours, and we were playing a card game, Rummy, and, or I was learning how to play Rummy, and we were sitting there and we were playing, the how many play Rummy? I don't even know if I remember how to do it anymore, but we were playing this card game Rummy, and we were seated at the table, and my father and stepmother and family were seated in the other room, they were in the living room, and they were just having a conversation. And... If you're a kid that's 10 or 11 years old, you have this incredible ability to listen to every single conversation within earshot and interpret everything being said. In fact, you can somehow extend this ear into this conversation, and this ear will find its way around the corner into the other one. You just have that ability. Kaylee Parker, or was really good at that growing up. We'd be having a conversation, we'd look up, her head would be in the railing. But I remember sitting at that table playing this card game, and while we were playing, and, and funny thing is, I don't remember the conversation we were having over cards, but all I remember is a statement that was made in the other room about me that has lasted from that day to now. And I was, again, I was probably 10 or 11 years old. And I heard my dad say my name, And when he did, it caught my attention because everybody that's 10 and 11 years old wants to know what somebody's saying about me. Everybody that's 50 years old wants to know. (laughs) And it caught my attention, and he said something about me that I don't remember. What I remember is my stepmother's response response to what he said. And it it impacted me at that moment, and it has impacted me since. And she said to my father and those that were in that room, she says, Don't you worry about Steve. Steve is the most responsible child I have ever known. Now, to you, that's maybe meaningless. But to a kid that's 10 years old that went back and forth between a divorced home, divorced parents, going back and forth under different rules, everything, trying to sort it out and trying to figure out my worth and my value, even at that young age. And what I, to, to believe and to hear someone say, don't you worry about Steve. He's the most responsible child I have known. Suddenly, sitting at that card table, I felt like I could not be beaten. deal them. <laughs> In those words, have, I've been reminded of those words so many times throughout my life. I'm 56 years old, so that was 46 years ago, roughly that I heard those words and I've been reminded of those words over and over and over again in my life and they have stuck with me in the same way if I had heard someone say, worry about Steve. He is clueless. He has no capacity to make a good decision in the same way those words would have stuck with me today. And it would have been a battle that I would have had to fight Many under the sound of my voice today are fighting the battle of what has been imposed upon you, whether self or others. But more than that, the most imposing force of shame on a person's life today is religion. Nothing imposes more shame on a a human being than religion. I said to the team this morning, if you could remove all religion from the earth, you would remove almost all shame. Because the imposition of shame on a person's life and religion is overwhelming. Religion lives and breathes by inducing shame. If I can make you shameful, you need me. If I can make you feel like you cannot be forgiven, you need me. Religion believes that if it can can impose this sense of your inability to ever become something more, you're going to need religion. Religion's very survival is dependent upon your shame. And without your shame, religion cannot exist. Religion creates its shame in its followers, but Yahweh God never does this. He wants you to focus on your end that can be great, just like Job. Forgiveness is given, in religion, forgiveness is given only with more rules. Religion raises up its followers to believe you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that, you must go here, you must wear this, you can't wear that, whatever it is. And religion imposes all of these things and religion says if you really love God, you really won't do that. If you really have a relationship with God, then these things wouldn't be present. And religion is constantly imposing these things. I'm attacking religion this morning. And religion is constantly imposing these things upon those who are seeking God. Religion gets in the way of that relationship with God by making a person believe they're so shameful that God would never receive them. Why would the Father who is perfect in all things receive me who can't even wear the right clothes? Why would the father who's looking for a kingdom that has no end and is full of righteousness, peace, and joy, why would he want anything to do with this person that religion keeps telling me that I'm never going to make it? I'm never going to get over the hump. I'm never going to become a respectable person. Religion, why would that God receive me when religion keeps reminding me of my sin, never reminding me of my possibility? I can't get past who I am within religion because religion won't let me. Because if I get past it, I no longer need religion. Religion Religion-induced shame exists in too many people today. Almost all shame has been induced by one form of religion or another. Anybody under the sound of my voice today that is dealing with shame, you're dealing with it, most of you are dealing with it today because of some religious idea that was imposed upon you that made you feel less than adequate in the kingdom of God. Made you feel less than capable of really having a deep relationship with a Father because religion is always going to make sure that you remember the forgiveness, you, why you needed forgiveness in the first place. But the kingdom... Is not that way. The kingdom of God is never looking to say to you. You were forgiven because you were this little rat. You were forgiven because you were this irresponsible whatever. You you needed forgiveness because you could never do the right thing. Religion will, our kingdom will never do that. Religion will say you were forgiven and I don't remember why. Religion will get right, a kingdom will get right in your face because the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is looking for a people to establish his kingdom in all of the earth and not a people who are cowering down because they're carrying the weight of the shame that has been imposed upon them by things that are so anti-Christ in the name of Christ. They impose these rules and regulations on them and and they cower down. How can a man, how can a woman, how can a person who trusts the Father stand up and become all that they're supposed to be when they're constantly cowering down? We're not a demonstration hiding under a rock. We're a demonstration standing on the rock. The kingdom of God is nothing like religion and I'm saying to you today if the shame that you're carrying today the father if you carry shame today imposed by religion I want you to know today the father is extending a ladder to you to get out of your hole I'm telling you today there is no shame you have to carry any longer because you are a child of God God loves you and he loves healing and he loves forgiveness There's a story in Acts, and I encourage you to read this. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to give you any particular scriptures in there. But Acts 13, 8, I guess might be a good one. But, but Acts 13 through 15, I encourage you to read these, uh, ver, this, these chapters. It's the story of Paul and Barnabas and the disagreement that they had over one of their little protégés called John Mark. He was actually the cousin of, of Barnabas. And I'm going to paraphrase this whole story, these chapters, these three chapters. But in these three chapters, they had they were getting ready to go on a missionary journey to Perga, which is in South Turkey. And on their getting ready to prepare to go there, Barnabas says to Paul, and I'm, again, I'm paraphrasing, but Barnabas says to Paul, he says, hey, he said, let's take John Mark, my cousin. I think it would be good for him to go with us. Well, Paul would not have it because... Paul said no because he said on our first missionary journey, on our first journey to Perga, John Mark bailed out on us. He went back home. He said, so I don't want to take your cousin because I don't trust that your cousin's going to go. He's not worthy to be with us. Because when we needed him the first time, he got cowardly and he went back home to what he knew. See, we're bringing a new gospel. We're bringing a new word. We're bringing a gospel to Perga. We're bringing a gospel, I'm just going to say Turkey. We're bringing a gospel to Turkey that needs the gospel. But because it was so different for John Mark, he went back to the religion that he had come from. He went back to what was familiar, and they got into a disagreement. Over the disagreement, Paul and Barnabas separated. Paul went one way. Barnabas went another way. But then in time, something happened. Again, I'm paraphrasing, and you can look in Philemon as well, and you can look in 2 Timothy as well, and find some of this reconciliation that occurs. But Paul and Barnabas go separate ways, and then then in time, you'll see, especially in Philemon and 2 Timothy, you find where Paul begins to address some of his ministry sons. And he says, most importantly, get John Mark. I need John Mark. Clearly forgiveness had come. Clearly a point had come, and this is all going to make sense in a minute. There was a point where Paul began to recognize that though John Mark had returned to religion, he he, he had returned to what he knew. He went back to mama, safety, security, the known versus the unknown. At some point, John Mark repented. I don't know when, I don't know how, but I know repentance came. And I know that he came to Barnabas, he came to his cousin, he said, I'm sorry. And no doubt he said to Paul, I apologize. I made a mistake. And I'm not going to live in that shame. I'm not going to live in that moment. I'm not going to live in what I failed at. And Barnabas forgave him. Paul forgave him. Barnabas forgave Paul. Paul forgave Barnabas. And they went on in ministry. And John Mark wrote the book of Mark. Something miraculous happened here. You've got two people. Believing with all of their heart that they're doing the thing that they believe is the right thing to do. Whether that thing... even if that thing created a situation between the two that seemed unresolvable. They were both right in this case. It's not always true, but in this case, they were both right. Paul did what Paul did because that's what he knew to do. He was passionate for the kingdom. But he did not let himself become so shameful that he could not say, I forgive. Barnabas did not let himself become so shameful because with, without being able to say, I forgive. And the same is true of John Mark. There is no shame in forgiveness. And there is no shame in repentance. Say that with me. There is no shame, there is no shame in, forgiveness, in forgiveness. And there is no shame repentance. Well, here's the problem with that. All I got is Adam here. It just says Adam, so I'm going to throw out there what the Holy Spirit gives me. Here's the problem. There's just enough Adam in all of us that makes repenting hard and makes forgiveness hard. Adam is always going to raise its head and it's always going to remind us of why we shouldn't forgive. And it's going to remind us why we shouldn't repent. But see... Repentance that justifies is not repentance. Forgiveness that justifies is not forgiveness. You need to hear me. Repentance that justifies is not repentance. In other words, I repent but. In fact, I said to the team earlier today, I said I should have titled this message today. How big is your butt? (laughs) It would have been a more appropriate title, but less acceptable, maybe. (laughs) Repentance is not repentance when it says, I repent, but... How big is that butt? Forgiveness that says, I forgive you, but. How big is your butt? That's just fun. I'm sorry. All the parents with kids under 10 are like. Repentance is repentance. And forgiveness is forgiveness. There are no buts allowed. Hear me. Well, that's easy, isn't it, to say, isn't it? How many would nod your head in agreement to that? Okay, well, how big have your buts been? Let's just make it plain. Let's just make it simple. Let's just say with your husband or your wife. Repentance was necessary. How many times have you repented but? Or forgiven but? With your children, how many times have you repented but? I repent but. You shouldn't have done that. That's not repentance. It's justification. Repentance has no but. Okay, we're done with that whole thing, but... It's still fitting. I'm glad you're laughing now because I want you to keep laughing. Repentance does not have a butt. Forgiveness does not have a but. Now, somebody might say, because we're challenged with certain levels of sin. See, that little bit of Adam in us, that little bit of Adam with us measures sin based on how affected we are by that sin. Would that not be true? That little bit of Adam in us says, Well, you know, um, it would be okay if you forgave them, but you, what you need to do is make sure that you hold this out, keep this out of the deal. Adam is always going to get in the way of the fullness of God developing in your life. Adam wants you to stay ashamed of who you are ashamed of what you have done doesn't want you to forgive yourself doesn't want you to forgive others doesn't want you to repent to yourself or repent to others Adam will get in the way every time of the fullness of what God wants to do in your life you need to hear what I'm saying What I'm going to share in just a moment is not going to make sense maybe, I think, in the beginning to a lot of people, but you're going to understand the principle. But the story might not you may not even be aware of, but the principle of it will be very familiar to you. But I want to read something. I want to tell you a little story about a man named Horatio Spafford. A lot like Job, I think. Horatio was an attorney in the late 1800s, mid to late 1800s in Chicago. He had one son and four daughters. How many know him? How many know who he is, Horatio Spafford? But he had one son and he had four daughters. He was married, had one son, four daughters. He was a well-known attorney and investor in Chicago in the mid to late 1800s. Well, in 1871, his son died. don't know why, but his son died And in that same year, just a few months later, the Chicago fires happened in 1871 and destroyed almost every single investment that he had, ruined him financially, ruined his family financially. In the weight of that financial ruin and the overwhelming grief and sorrow of losing his son and losing his sustenance and trying to provide for his family, he knew that there was... A revival taking place in England, and his wife and his four daughters were very much broken-hearted over the loss of a brother and son, not knowing where the bread was coming from the next day. So they had, through a couple of years, tried to process all that had gone on, and they just weren't making it, and he heard of this revival by an evangelist named D.L. Moody in England. So he conjured up, got some money somehow to afford some tickets for his wife and his four daughters to travel to England and be a part of this revival with D.L. Moody. So they get on the ship in New York and they begin to travel across the Atlantic, headed towards England. On the way there in the middle of the night, they run into a ship, they crash, the ship sinks, all four of his daughters are drowned at sea, only his wife survives. He hears of the news, and he immediately makes plans to himself travel to obviously comfort his wife. So he boards the ship, and as he boards the ship to head that way and whatever time frame had now elapsed, but he boards the ship to begin to head over to England, and on his way to England, when he's passing that very spot where the ships crashed and his daughters lost their lives at sea along with everyone else on that ship other than his wife. When he's crossing that point, He begins to break down in tears and he writes the song, It is well with my soul. And these are the words. When peace, keep in mind he is crossing the spot on the Atlantic where he had realized I have lost everything. It is my wife and I alone. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, when I will see what I believe for. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. And the Lord shall descend descend. even so. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. One cannot arrive at this place that he arrived at absent the love and compassion of Yahweh God. One who is forgiven much. And understands the depths of God's love and grace and his unending passion to establish his kingdom in the earth. Only he can truly forgive another. Sometimes we forgive others. Sometimes we forgive ourselves. Either way. Forgiveness is the pathway to the kingdom of God being revealed in the earth. Shame among us, within us, the shamefulness one may feel, you can be delivered today by forgiving those who imposed it, in repenting if you brought it on yourself. Wherever there is repentance and wherever there is forgiveness, shame is healed shame is healed god is in the business of healing he is in the business of restoring he does not see our issues like we see our issues through the eyes of adam He sees the kingdom of God as a whole, not as a part or portion. In his heart, he does not see his kingdom as being one that is divided among many, but it is one with many in it. Again, I say to you, repentance doesn't justify. It simply repents. Forgiveness doesn't justify it simply forgives. I want you to say that with me, and then we're going to move into this, something different. Say this with me. Repentance, Repentance does not justify. Does not justify. It, repents. it repents. In fact, I want to do it the other way around. I want to start with, with forgiveness. Let's say this together. Say forgiveness, forgiveness doesn't, justify. doesn't justify. It has no buts. It, no buts. it forgives. Repentance Repentance. doesn't justify. justify. It has no buts. It buts. It It repents. If I were to ask the question, whether in this room or online, anybody under the sound of my voice, if I were to ask the question, how many believe, and with all of your heart, you want the kingdom of God to be whole and to be complete, and you want healing to be present, I believe that every single person under the sound of my voice would raise their hand. I believe that every single person would say, I want forgiveness for all mankind. How many would say that with me today? Raise your hand. How many would say, I want all, uh, all that need to repent, I want repentance to be present in every person. I want there to be a spirit of repentance in myself and everyone else. Raise your hand. Amen. Amen. Well, the challenge there is often we want the other people to have more of a sense of repentance than ourselves. Is that true, Denise? <laughs> we want them that you need. Well, you know what? When you do this, then I'll do this. And, and often, the Adam in us waits on the other person to take the lead, because we sent, somehow the Adam in us is comforted by the fact that if they did it first, then there's some measure of them accepting that there's some guilt with it. There's some uh, claim to the issue. Because that's the nature of Adam. It's not the nature of God.